You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Good morning, fam. What is up? I pray that you are well today, wherever you are. If you're new with us, my name is Josh. I'm actually the lead pastor here at Refuge. Refuge is a church plant in South Austin, Southeast Austin specifically. Uh, man, if, if you have just been joining us, uh, if you call Refuge home, if you're new, whatever it is, I just want to take a second to say thank you for joining us, man. Like it, It's a buffet of churches on Facebook on Sunday morning, so the fact that you're here with us means a lot. All right, it means a lot, so thank you. Uh, yeah, man, so um, if, again, if, as I mentioned, if you're new, man, we would love to hear, not just if you're new, but if you call Refuge Home, if you join us periodically, we would love to know that you're here with us, that you're joining us. Uh, we'd love to know how we can serve you, how we can pray for you. Uh, so, man, I encourage you, go back into the video description, hit that connect uh, link, and let us know how you're doing, man. Let us know how we can serve you. If you want to holler at me personally, you can, or my email is... Uh, Josh at RefugeAustin.com. Feel free to holler. We would love to connect with you some way. Uh, right now, what we're going to do is we're going to jump into our time in Scripture. We're going to be finishing up our series in Acts, which I have mixed emotions about. I'm excited for what's coming next, but I'm also a little sad because I like Acts a lot. But um, hey, give you some direction. We are going to be in some uh, standalone sermons for the next couple of weeks, meaning they're not going to be part of a certain sermon series. There are going things coming from my heart and some things that I think are timely for us as a community. Uh, but then after that, we're going to be going into uh, our upcoming sermon series, which we're announcing next week. So come back next week if you want to know about that. All right. You see, that's a good plug right there. Um, hey, but today we are going to finish up in Acts. We're going to be finishing up Acts chapter 8. We're going to be looking at everyone's favorite topic, obedience. And the little number just goes dwindling down, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, obedience. And, and I know, man, I know. Obedience is kind of like a complicated topic. It, it kind of brings up a lot of emotions, different emotions for a lot of us. And I get it, man. People have really mutilated godly obedience and kind of really used it as a way to gain ungodly things in ungodly ways for basically like all of human history. Yet the best theological minds of all time speak pretty dang highly of obedience. Martin Luther, the great German reformer and theologian said, obedience is the crown and honor of all virtue. Wow. John Calvin, the, the French theologian and reformer wrote, but not only faith, perfect and in every way complete, but all right knowledge of God is born of obedience. Dang. Um, what about scripture? What does scripture say? Okay, I think a great example is 1 Samuel 15, 22 that says, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obedience, in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. Wow. So there's a ton more, but really the point I'm trying to make is this, that, that godly obedience gets a bad rap. Uh, it's been kind of mixed with like toxic uh, leadership and uh, really just like all kind of these negative things and, and overbearing, harsh leadership, whether from other people to us or from us to ourselves as being like trying to lead ourselves, but having this very harsh, overbearing disposition toward ourselves. And so uh, I know that it, it can be a bit of a struggle. That mixture uh, can often also cause us to lose the joy, the uh, the wisdom, the life that's supposed to come from godly, healthy obedience. And and the truth is this, what I want us to gain from, from today is this, that man, healthy obedience produces healthy spirituality, right? Healthy obedience produces healthy spirituality. And if spirituality, our spirituality, i.e. our faith, 
is one of the major things, hopefully the major thing shaping our life, then really what, what it means is that healthy obedience produces a healthy life. Um, we're going to be working through the text today, like we're going to be working through looking what healthy obedience looks like from Acts chapter 8. We'll touch on some ideas of unhealthy obedience as well. Uh, but overall, what, what I want to focus in on are, are two very specific characteristics of healthy obedience. And that is, one, that healthy obedience calls us to humility. Okay, healthy obedience calls us to humility. And two, that healthy obedience reveals God's truth. Okay, this healthy obedience that is really reliant and dependent on Jesus, that, that when we walk out obedience in that way, right, uh, that, that, that it actually calls us to humility, but it also reveals God's truth in our lives. And, and it's my hope that as we work through these two characteristics, that we actually are able to, to assess whether we're walking out uh, healthy obedience in our lives or if we're not. And if we're not, uh, man, I want to offer us a space to really confess and repent that at the end of of our talk today, of our sermon. Uh, in addition, give us a direction where we hope to go with our obedience, not just individually, but corporately as a church. So let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to take a look at how uh, healthy obedience calls us to humility first, okay? And where we're going to start there is in verse 26. We're starting with the story of Philip, okay? Uh, and, and if you remember, Philip is one of the seven guys that was chosen to uh, help out with food distribution in the community. Uh, and it is suffices to say, right, suffice to say that, that Philip has really overshot his station at this point, okay? Where we last saw him in the beginning of chapter 8, he was basically leading a revival in enemy territory, all right? And what's amazing about that is that Philip is not one of the apostles, okay? Philip was really a part just of the community. He was a godly man filled with the Spirit, obviously sensitive to God's Spirit, sensitive to God's will. I mean, like, like uh, open and willing to give himself to obedience, all which things we should strive for. And as a result, he, he's elevated like a deacon status. He's a lead servant in the church, but, um, but overall still kind of a normal dude. And so if you could kind of picture this and kind of relate to it, it like, like feel this, man, like, you, whoever you are in the camera, right, where you're sitting, imagine you, you go to work, you come home, you go to church, you serve at here at Refuge or at your home church where you are, and through all that, all of a sudden, you visit a foreign country, probably, let's say, like an Islamic country in the Middle East, and because of you, right, the Lord works through you to basically pop off a revival. That's what it would have been like. That's what it was like to be Philip. And so pretty great, pretty cool, not going to lie. But that's also what makes verse 26 so perplexing as a human being, right? It's verse 26 where it says, An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. And so that angel of the Lord is, is we can understand that's, that's God urging Philip, okay? And, and he, being this, this amazing servant, obeys and he follows, but... But this would have been a real bummer for Philip, man. It, it kind of might have felt like a demotion after he was promoted, you know. Um, Gaza was really like a kind of like a desert. It was being rebuilt after it had been really torn down years prior. Not a lot of people lived there. Uh, yeah, especially in comparison to Samaria where he was at. And I don't know about you, man, but if I'm in that situation, I can only imagine the kind of questions that I'd be asking the Lord. Like, why would you do this? Why do you do that? Like, like, I would have been filled with so many questions, and I may have obeyed, but I probably would have obeyed with some bitterness. Um, 
You know, but but the beautiful thing about Philip's obedience is that it's not built on self-preservation, man. It's not built on self-exaltation. It's not built on self at all. It's built on humility. Okay, it's built on humility. And the thing is healthy obedience. Write this down. Healthy obedience is not built on self. It's built on humility. It's built on this understanding that God's ways, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, God's ways are higher than our ways. And God's will is higher than our will. God's thoughts higher than ours, his vision greater than ours, all that beautiful, beautiful business, then Philip understood that. And because of that humility, the call to obedience in Philip's life didn't result in him being angry, bitter, reluctant, or just straight up disobedient. It caused him to trust, right? When that humility is set in our hearts and we understand the contrast between us and God, right? Not just being different, but peers, but being subordinate and glorious, sovereign, beautiful king, right? It, it produces a sense, that humility produces a trust, uh, an acceptance, um, a reliance on Jesus, on God, as we walk in obedience before him. But that doesn't mean that it always makes sense to us. It doesn't. Oftentimes, it can be difficult to understand godly obedience, specifically because we're attempting to live out godly, heavenly ways of life in bodies of flesh. That's why we often fail. That's why we often mess up. It's also why the Apostle Paul encourages us in Romans 12 to renew our mind. Okay, he specifically says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Do you see that? He's saying that without the renewing of your mind, you can't understand the will of God, a.k.a. how to obey him. What does that mean? It means that it's difficult to understand obedience sometimes. As a human being who is imperfect, um, who, is, who is living out a godly life by grace, the grace of the cross, who is being renewed daily, who depends on mercy daily, there are times where obedience is extraordinarily confusing, extraordinarily confusing from the bottom to the top. Doesn't matter if you're a pastor or if you're just newly saved, obedience is difficult for all of those stages. There are absolutely, absolutely uh, times where our sinful desires seem to make much more sense. But even in those moments, the key to having healthy obedience is not to automatically feel like, oh yeah, that, sure, that seems like the right thing to do. The healthy obedience in our lives is the humility that ca we're called into as we accept God's will and go, you know what, this doesn't make sense to me, but, but I accept it. I'm going to obey. I'm, I'm going to walk out what you have for me. And, and hear me, this doesn't just apply to what we shouldn't do. Okay, like the negatives. I can't do that. I can't do this. I can't do that. Uh, but, but this also applies what we should do as well. Okay, healthy obedience isn't just prohibitive. Hear me, healthy obedience is not just prohibitive, it's proactive. Okay, it's proactive. It, our obedience isn't found in what we shouldn't do, it's really found in what God is calling us up to. That's why in Ephesians 4, Paul says to not just take off the old man, but to also put on the new man. Obedience isn't primarily what we can't do, Okay, healthy obedience, I should say. Healthy obedience isn't primarily what we can't do. It's about eliminating the things that are stopping us from doing what we're called to do. Okay, and, to, and really that also likewise, if I'm being honest, is, is hard to understand at times. It doesn't mean that it makes it any easier. But, but that understanding of, of knowing, hey, you know what? Like, like I, I'm gonna look at my obedience in a positive way rather than in a negative way. It starts to frame 
what we set our attention on. Okay, unhealthy obedience looks at our lives and goes, you know what? If I follow Jesus, that means I can't lust anymore. While, while healthy obedience looks at Jesus and goes, man, you are now calling me to be pure like you're pure. Unhealthy obedience looks at our lives and puts the restriction, the prohibition on us and goes, okay, now I can no longer be impatient. While godly Healthy obedience looks at Jesus and goes, man, you have been so patient with me that you are now calling me into being patient with others, with myself, bringing unity, right? Unhealthy obedience is self-reliant, right? Is, 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 is putting all uh, of the eggs in the basket of us while healthy obedience sets our attention, our eyes on Jesus, who he is, understanding how we're called to live by seeing who he is and how he lives, right? It, the healthy obedience isn't really just saying, oh yeah, healthy obedience means that you're gonna be means that you're gonna be perfect. Healthy obedience has a deeper connection to having a humble reliance and dependence on the perfecter of our faith, right? Of the sanctifier of our lives, Jesus Himself. But it takes humility, it takes humility in those moments to believe that Jesus is taking our efforts, He's taking our our understanding. He's taking, uh, man, uh, what we're giving him, uh, and, and he's creating a healthy spirituality from it. it. It takes humility to believe that and to continue to submit to him. But, but that submission, man, that humility, that healthy obedience, I want to say that it's worth it. I want to tell you that it's worth it. And one of the biggest reasons that it's worth it is actually because of what it does once we start step, once we step into obedience, right? It, and that's really our second point, that once we're in that obedience, man, healthy obedience begins to reveal God's truth in our lives. So take a look at verses 27 through 35, and, and we're it's probably going to be actually the rest of the text that we're going to read, uh, from Acts at least. And so 27 says, so he, Philip, got up and went. So he's responding in obedience. He's getting up. He's going. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury, who had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he, <laughs> he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I? He said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before its shear, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. Now, before we jump in, I want to remind us that we read this as white, black, Hispanic, Asian, Native American, whatever it is, non-Jewish Western American people, right? With the assumption that Christianity is a ethnically inclusive faith, and no matter where you are, what you look like, you can be Christian. But I want to encourage, I want to remind you that if you take a step back, put yourself in the early disciples' shoes, the early disciples of Jesus, they didn't have that thought completely, right? They were still figuring that out. 
And so, yeah, the Samaritans had come to faith, but the Samaritans were also really like part Hebrew ethnically. And they even worshiped the God of Israel, but they had mixed in other weird like religious practices from other faiths. And so some people thought like the Messiah was going to reunite those two camps and restore Israel. And that was going to be one of the ways he did it. So that really, there was precedence for that. What there wasn't precedence for, what would have been more jarring is when in enters this Ethiopian man. Right. Yeah, he loves God. Yeah, he loves, he worships the God of Israel. He went from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, which on a chariot took like five months one way. Yo. So that means it's like almost a year back and forth. But he's not, he's not Hebrew. He's a black man from Ethiopia who, in fact, works in the Ethiopian like royalty with the queen. And if you were first century res, like Roman resident, Okay, whether you were Hebrew or anything else, hearing that this man was Ethiopian, if you're reading the book of Acts, would have shaken you and really would have zoomed you back out to, to an early verse in Acts because it would have reminded you of something, which is Acts 1.8 where, where Jesus talking to his disciples says, you will be my witness in all Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, here's the crazy thing. Ethiopia was the farthest that Roman expeditions had gone south. And so Ethiopia was the farthest point south that they knew of. Therefore, in their mind, the, the, the known world at the time, Ethiopia was not just a far point south. It was the ends of the earth. Then disciples had been in Jerusalem. They had been in Judea. They had now gone into Samaria. And it was through the, 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 the leading of the Holy Spirit and Philip's obedience that they were now going to walk into fulfilling God's command of going to the ends of the earth and continuing on past there to, to unexplored territory, right? Philip's obedience didn't just lead him down a road. It led him to unveiling the truth that the kingdom that God was building was not an ethnocentric faith or kingdom, but it was now going to invite people from all different walks of life, all different skin colors, all different hair textures, all different languages, all different X, Y, and Z. It was going to be something that invited you and invited me, no matter where we came from, because as Jesus had come to bring restoration and redemption to all, then that's the truth that, that Philip's obedience unveiled. But there was a truth that was going to be directly, maybe even more impactful to this, to this eunuch that day. You see, verse 27 has a different description for the Ethiopian, not just Ethiopian, but he's also, as I mentioned, a eunuch. And a eunuch was someone who had been castrated. They had had their, their private areas cut off, men who had had their private areas cut off. And, and during ancient times, this often was a practice for those that were going to take care of or be over a king's harem, the, the, the concubines and, and, and the women that he was with. And, and they wanted someone who would not have the ability to engage them physically. And so they put uh, castrated men, eunuchs, over uh, the harems. Now, this eunuch worked for a queen, though. And so he wasn't over a harem. Rather, he was over a treasury. So he was a pretty important guy. He had resources available to him. Like, like this was kind of a big shot. Um, but you know what? What you, what you kind of can't tell if you're not a part of this culture is that all that money didn't matter. Because at the end of the day, all that money, all, all the resources, the comfort that he might have had, because he was a eunuch, the scriptures actually say that he was not allowed to be a part of God's covenant community. In Deuteronomy, there's a text that specifically says that eunuchs are not allowed to be a part of God's covenant community, a part of God's family. 
And so even though he loved God, even though he was making that year-long trip from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship God, he was a foreigner and a eunuch. And his status as a foreigner and as a eunuch would have always excluded him and would have been the primary means that he was identified by. And so whether it was the eunuch's own doing or whether it was God's sovereign Sovereign orchestration, I don't think it was a coincidence that this eunuch was reading from Isaiah's scroll, from the, the prophet, the book of Isaiah. He was reading from Isaiah 53. This talks about Jesus, really, a prophecy of Jesus being the, 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 the sheep that's led to the slaughter, the lamb that's quiet before its shears. But it's not a coincidence that that's really only three chapters prior to a text that specifically talks about the, the impact that that sheep is going to have on the eunuch. Three chapters ahead in verse in chapter 56, starting in verse 3, it says, No foreigner, he's a foreigner, who has joined himself to the Lord should say, The Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch, he's a eunuch, should not say, Look, I am a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, For the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. I can only imagine, I can only imagine as Philip began to take Isaiah 53 and tease out who Jesus was and show him how Jesus had given himself on the cross in order to bring restoration and reconciliation for a man to God uh, and from God to man through the, the payment of Jesus on the cross that he would have just flipped over those couple of pages, just worked his way down the scroll a little bit and says, and you know this part? The part that says the foreign eunuch will now have a name greater than a son or daughter, will be brought into the house and the family of God. This Jesus, this Jesus has made it so. He is the sheep that was led to the slaughter so that, so that the outsiders could be brought in and be, be made a part of the family. This Jesus has eliminated the barriers because the insider was given up on the cross like an outsider, so the outsiders could be brought in. This Jesus is whom you now by faith and by grace have been brought into the family of God by, and who, knew, who now by whom you have a place in our family, in the kingdom forever. After a lifetime of being being rejected after a lifetime of being isolated, of being an outsider, I could only imagine what, what that eunuch's heart must have felt like. And really, the rest of the text kind of gives us an idea, because the, the last four verses there say that he basically jumps out of the chair and is like, hey, man, can I get baptized right there in like a stream or whatever was next to him? And Philip goes and dunks him right there right as he accepts Jesus. The, the eunuch who could never have received the covenant sign of, of family membership that was circumcision now is baptized into the family of Jesus because of the, the truth that Philip's obedience had unveiled, right? Had, had brought to light in this man's life. Philip's humble obedience, man, unveiled a truth that was so incredibly life-changing to this Ethiopian man that it changed 
uh, it didn't just change his life. It changed many, a multitude of lives over thousands of years. There is actually a church in Ethiopia to this day that traces their spiritual lineage back to this Ethiopian man. It traces their lineage all the way back and says that man received that faith from Philip and he came back and started teaching us this faith. He, he began to, to make disciples and to share the good news and share the same hope that he had received on that road to Gaza. And then from there, he began to implant that hope in others, that faith in others, that obedience into others. And now, generation after generation, there is a community that says, we have met and worshiped the Lord through the means of his son, Jesus, who has made a way for us, going all the way back to that man. That's the power that, that, that Philip's obedience carried, not because of how special it was, but because through his obedience, his humble and his healthy obedience, his submission to God, a truth about who God is and what he's doing in that Ethiopian's life, a truth about how he was pursuing that Ethiopian, how he was relentlessly going after him, pursuing him with goodness and redemption and restoration and, and reconciliation. Because of Philip's obedience, that truth was unveiled. That's where it happened. If Philip says no, that truth doesn't get to that Ethiopian. That Ethiopian doesn't carry that, that faith back to Ethiopia. There is a beauty of what God is doing in our obedience that, that is so beautiful because it unveils truths in our lives and in the lives of others. And likewise, man, family, I, I, another point to add to this that, that I want us to grasp, and I, I want you to hear me here, is that, man, I think oftentimes the joy, the peace, the hope that we feel like we so desperately need, that we're so desperately missing. Man, friends, oftentimes it's not missing. It's just caught up in obedience. Oftentimes the hope that we're missing, it's just caught up in obedience. If you feel like you're not experiencing the fullness of life in faith, I, I would extend to you, not to, to necessarily indict you. I don't know your life, you know, specifically, but I would invite you to consider, hey, man, how do you think like, you're doing in obedience? Not just like, oh, well, I don't do this, this, and that, but how do you feel like you're doing in the positive obedience? How do you feel like you're doing evangelizing? How do you feel like you're doing discipling other people? How do you feel like you're doing uh, striving uh, to create unity in your community of faith, whether it's refuge or your own home church? How, where do you feel like you're doing these things? Because, man, if you're doing these things, oftentimes this obedience starts to unveil truths about who God is that begin to bring us a sense of peace, bring us a sense of hope, bring us a sense of joy that nothing else really possibly could. Oftentimes, the obedience that God is calling us to is also going to, going to be the means of producing the truth, hope, joy, peace, and encouragement that we're longing for, friends. Man, it's oftentimes, hear me, it's not a godly life that produces obedience. Oftentimes, it's, it's obedience that begins to shape a godly life. Not because uh, obedience is rewarded one-to-one, -one, but actually because obedience is more than an act of discipline. Obedience is healthy obedience, is an act of faith. Healthy obedience is, is taking the risk and going, you know what, because I trust you, because I, I humbly accept that you are who you are and I am who I am, I'm going to give myself to this and I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to put my effort into your hands. I'm going, to, I'm going to rely on you to use my abilities, however small or big they are, and, and I'm going to entrust you and, and God take it. Right, right. Those moments of obedience 
when we feel weak, when we feel unable, when we feel not capable, when we feel small, those moments of placing our trust in Jesus and putting our lives, our efforts, our, 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 our obedience into his hands are the means by which he begins to shape and form and bring out truths about who he is and what he's doing and how he's doing it and what he desires for us that begin to shape a life that's relying on him, that begins to look more like him. Friends, our healthy obedience is not just one uh, that is, is doing things the right way, because the reality is a lot of times we're not going to. A healthy obedience is the one that begins to learn and understand what relying on Jesus in and for our obedience looks like. I, I need to finish up here, and, and I'm, I'm just about done, but uh, preparing this week actually also it brought to mind and thinking through obedience and, and what this humble obedience looks like and how, uh, how, how this healthy obedience is, is one that's reliant on God and, and, and really understands and depends on Jesus, but then like, you know, all, all the stuff we've been talking about. It made me think of this moment during me and Rachel's wedding, my, my wife. Um, it was actually after the wedding. You know, we got married, and, and then we went on our honeymoon, and we got back. We started unpacking gifts and, and took inventory of all them checks and all them gift cards, X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, a wedding is fun, man, because a wedding is like the only time where you're like, hey, person I haven't seen in three years, where's my gift? Right? Like, it's a pretty fun time. When we got back, the Sunday we, we got back, we went to church. We started catching up with everybody. Everybody starts laughing, congratulating you. I, I specifically remember that one older brother, by older, I mean he was like 40, and came up to me and he was like, "Hey man, I'm sorry that uh, I'm sorry that I didn't wasn't able to make it uh, here. Me and my wife wanted to give you a gift though." And he puts a book in my hand, um, a marriage book, <laughs> another marriage book to add to my growing list of marriage books that were sitting on my shelf, some of which I'd read. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'll be honest, man, in, in light of like gift cards and and appliances and checks. I'll be honest, I was just less enthusiastic about this book. So that book went from that hand to my home straight to my bookshelf, and it stayed there. I did not read that bad boy. Um, until two years later, I started to preach a little bit more. I was in a rhythm of preaching more often. And um, I was scheduled to, to give a, a talk, a sermon about marriage and two years into marriage, it's, it's, that's daunting because it's one thing uh, to be married. It's one thing to read a book about marriage. It's a whole other thing to be married. Then it's a whole other thing to capture the truths about God in marriage that help us, you know, shape a, a healthy marriage. And so I'm freaking out. So I go to my bookshelf. I start grabbing all the books that I can on marriage and I'm like, what's going on? Um, and, and so I, I pull out all the classics that you could think of, right? The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller, This Momentary Marriage by John Piper. Um, you and Me for Forever by Francis Chan, The Mingling of Souls by Matt Chandler. Oh, yeah, all the classics. And, uh, and, and then I, I look up, and there's one that I, I don't remember seeing. It's called Lasting Love by Alistair Begg. And it's a book on how to uh, avoid or, or, or fight through, right, of the fa um, potential marriage failure. And so I pick it up because I'm like, I don't remember seeing this. And so I open it in the first page. Uh, is, is, is a signature from my buddy, uh, our brother, and, and his, his wife, just saying, hey, congratulations, love you guys, X, Y, and Z. So I kind of shrug, put it on the stack, go back to my desk. I start looking through all the books, finding highlights, all that kind of stuff, um, until I finally get to this last book, Lasting Love. And I know that I haven't read it, so I don't even take a second to look for highlights because I know for a fact I ain't opened it. 
So I open it to the first page and I start reading the forward. Then I get to the first chapter. I read about halfway through the first chapter. And I get curious thinking to myself, like, I wonder how much, how, how long this chapter is. And so I skip ahead. I look to the end of the chapter. And, and to my surprise, I met with a crisp, clean $5 bill. And so if my interest in the book was peaked before, it's extra peaked now, all right? And so I flip over to the end of chapter two, and I'm met with another crisp, clean $5 bill. Chapter three, another one. Chapter four, another one. Five, another one. Six, another one. Seven, and so on. Um, it struck me because what this, this brother wanted to give me the desires of my heart which was like some money to go buy new things for our apartment, X, Y, and Z. But he also wanted me to have so much more than that, so much more than my small, immature mind could think of. He wanted me to have truths about marriage that would anchor me and Rachel through hard times and prevent us maybe from having some as we moved forward in our marriage, ultimately giving us the desires of our hearts, but again, giving us so much more than that. Friends, I want to tell you that I think obedience is really similar. Man, God wants to give you peace. God, I think, I truly believe that God wants to give you joy, that he wants to, to give you peace and hope and, and all those things. I, for, I wholeheartedly, he's a good father. I wholeheartedly believe that. But what good would they do if he gave us figments of our imagination that we call peace, that we call hope, that we call joy? Yet in obedience, he calls us into taking step after step. And, and as we work through every chapter of our life, yes, we get a little bit more of that joy, but we also gain understanding of, of his peace. Yes, after every chapter, we get a little bit more of that hope, but we, we get a little bit also a, a little bit more of an understanding of, 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 of really the hope and the promises that Jesus has won for us. And, and in every chapter of our life that we move forward, and yes, we get a little bit more in, in this act of obedience as we're walking out obedience with Jesus of, of the things we were hoping for. But the things that we were hoping for, the things that we desired, the hope, the peace, the joy, that were so faulty and kind of flimsy before as we work through obedience begin to become anchored in the beauty of this Savior who is not just now giving us arbitrary peace, but he's now becoming our peace, right? Through this act of obedience, he's not just giving us arbitrary joy, but he's now becoming our joy. He's not giving us arbitrary hope. He's now becoming our hope, our living hope, Jesus Man, the greatest gift of obedience, healthy, godly obedience, is not that through it we get the treasures that we were hoping for. It's that through it God begins to reshape what our treasures are in the first place. We now have an anchor that goes so much deeper than just a moment, but is now found in him. Right? That's the beauty of this type of obedience. Healthy obedience, friends, family, is not perfect obedience. There's only one who's accomplished perfect obedience, and his name is Jesus. If that's you, man, if, if you're expecting perfect obedience from yourself, I want to lovingly correct you. Stop. As, as your pastor or even just a friend of yours, stop. Because that's, that, that's going to create nothing but burden. Healthy obedience 
is the one that places our trust in the one who has accomplished perfect obedience, expecting him to take the means, the, the things that we're giving him, our obedience, no matter how weak or strong it is, and, and anticipating and placing our hope and trust that he's gonna make something beautiful out of it. And so if you don't know what it is, if you're scared to say hi to your neighbor or to share your faith with the person that you've you know, checked in on here and there every once in a while, a friend of yours, man, that's okay. You don't need to have all the faith in yourself. What we have, healthy obedience isn't saying that we're going to be the perfect evangelist, the perfect disciple maker, the perfect Christian, the perfect husband, the perfect wife, the perfect parent, the perfect employee. It's saying I have trusted the one who is perfect and I'm going to do what I can to be obedient to him, to live out uh, my mission of evangelism and sharing the hope to, 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 to living out peace, joy, hope, and love. And I'm going to put those things in his hands and I'm going to trust that the, 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 the author and perfecter of my faith is actually going to do something with it. That's healthy obedience. That's what it looks like. That's what healthy obedience feels like. Today, friends, if you're not walking um, in that healthy obedience, I want to invite you to do something that is a little weird, right? So kind of a biblical idea, again, that we have a weird relationship with, but it's really beautiful, and it creates some beautiful things and introduces us to some beautiful characteristics of God. I want to invite you to repent. I know it's crazy. Just calm down. Um, I want to invite you to repent. I want to invite you to, man, even now, if you want to pause this video and call a brother, call a sister, if you're in a refuge church, I wanted to encourage you, man, if you're getting a call right now, or if you get a call in a few minutes, answer it. Go to another room, answer it. Be there for your brothers and sisters. Call brother and sister and let them know, man, like, man, if I'm being honest, my efforts, they are rooted solely in 100% in myself. They, they are absolutely, I, I depend on my own wisdom. I depend on the fruit of my own labor. I, I, my obedience is, is really narrowed down to what I can understand and not placing, not as an extend into a place where I have to use faith in order to obey. My obedience is an unhealthy obedience. I am not walking in healthy obedience. Um, and allow your brothers and sisters, allow your brothers and sisters to, to minister to you with the grace of Jesus, okay? And after that, I want to invite you, man, be obedient and, and pray to the Holy Spirit to help you, help you grow in that area, okay? Pray to the Holy Spirit to help you grow into healthy obedience. Reach back into this sermon. Listen to it again. Make the adjustments you need in the language you use for obedience. Change from, I can't do this, to God has called me to this, right? Like, oh, I can't do that. Well, no, instead of that, I'm going to start thinking God has actually called me to this. I I'm to live out life as Christ in this way. And the last thing is that I, wa I want to encourage you to take some practical steps in obedience, man. Like, Go to community group this week, right? Fight for those relationships. Um, share your faith with somebody if you have that opportunity. Um, and reach out to somebody. I know that we're in a quarantine time still. That doesn't mean that the text messages are dead, right? Like, like we want to live out the conviction of obedience, even if the methods have changed, right? We can't maybe see each other. We can't, you can't go to a neighbor's house right now. The methods may be different, but the conviction of obedience ha can't change. Right, right. I want us to live out that conviction. Um, yeah, and it's my desire, truly, that as we as a refuge, we would be marked by this type of healthy obedience that, that, that relies on Jesus and, and invites others to rely on Jesus and, and brings that truth and redemption everywhere we go as we faithfully walk in obedience before God. 
So that's my hope for us. That's my hope for you, friend. Uh, I love you. I want to go ahead and pray. We're going to have one more song of worship, and then we're going to come back and, and we'll finish up. So, Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us your spirit that leads us into truth, including the truth of what healthy obedience looks like. We love you. We thank you for that, God. Uh, right now, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that if we're not walking in healthy obedience before you, that you would allow us to do that. Uh, God, uh, thank you for being the anchor of our hope, the anchor of our joy. And when we don't understand that, thank you for, for helping us understand it through what you're doing in our lives, um, in, in our moments specifically of obedience. We love you. We thank you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.